One year, I kind of got an idea. You know, I want to try trap. I like to trap. I like to make lure, and I like to write. Where can it go from here? I would be able to spend more time in the woods. I was losing money hand over fish trapping, but I didn't care. Getting the traps out there is the hardest part, I think, with them. I would leave the critters in the back of my truck in the high school parking lot. We're going to set traps, like, no matter what. Some of these guys have trapped these areas for generations. We got through the furball. This is Northern Michigan. This is what you do. Representing trappers in a positive light. I'm going to ask you guys a question. Do you know everything? This will be fun. Trying to learn something from these legends. Ask questions without asking questions. Volumes of Perfect and Game magazine. There's structure from Perigo Gorman. Perg Lennon's articles, the Perg Lennon's ads. Information, trapping radios. We are trappers and ourselves. To me, that's pretty important. All right, everybody listening to me? Develop a system yet because working ahead of time to build big traffic. If you got very much the same as the you got bogged down. They started talking about these big plans. Most of my tunes are coming from up top, not down bottom. Probably the best part of the country in the world. I don't know, get any better. Trying to set predator traps and trash waders. The back of that beaver looks like it gets sheared. You better edit this part out. Yeah, it was better. Hello, and welcome to the Trapping Today podcast. Jeremiah has been hijacked, and I'm your host, Josh Fisher, coming at you from Alaska. Captain's Day is brought to you by Cop Brothers Lures, K-A-A-T-Z, throws.com. Trap smarter, work harder, enjoy the success that follows. Hit them up for all your trap line needs. We're also brought to you by Onyx Map. Turn your phone into a fully functioning GPS. Check land ownership, mark your locations, and make traps. Go to onyxmaps.com, check them out. Use code TRAP for 20% off. Lastly, the Trapping Today store. Check it out for Lures, Jeremiah's book, and the Trapping Today t-shirts. So, I'm hijacking Jeremiah's podcast here so we can talk about Martin trapping. And that's one of Jeremiah's favorite things to do. And, Jeremiah, why don't you tell us how you got into Martin trapping? Oh, you People were thinking for a second there I wasn't going to be on this episode. They are going to get a break from listening to my voice. <laughs> sorry guys here i am um how i got into martin trapping yeah how'd you get into martin trapping so martin were the believe it or not the most accessible species for a new trapper where i grew up Uh, we didn't i was kind of i was in the woods and we didn't have a lot of water there were some areas where maybe you know you'd find muskrats or mink and you know rats are often people's first species that they trap but for me i i started getting into trapping and the the easiest thing to do was grab some 110 conner bears and set them in in the woods for martin and that's what i did so that that was kind of the the uh the Mar- martin were the uh, martin was the first animal that i ever caught and i became pretty addicted to it uh, re- re- after that first one pretty pretty easy to do to get it addicted to trapping them that's uh it's your your favorite thing to trap right it is yeah martin is definitely my favorite species and it's it's not uh a lot of people favorite they base their favorite species on different attributes and things that they uh personally enjoy for instance some people like to trap uh certain animals because they're a challenge right People like to trap wolves because it's a big accomplishment. It's a challenge. Uh, some people like to trap muskrats because they're easy. Um, I, I I trap. I like to trap marten for for reasons that have nothing to do with how easy or hard they are to trap or how simple or complicated it is. You just you really just love trapping like any kind of musculate. Is is like uh, is Fisher your your next favorite thing to trap? I don't know. I you know, and the reason I like trapping Martin is because of the country that Martin live in. So they you you find Martin in northern climates, cold areas, uh, lots of snow and lots of trees. And uh, Martin don't do well near population centers. You don't see you don't see very you know M- Martin are, are kind of indicative of wild places 
as a species. And so that really has a lot to do with why I enjoy it so much. It's, it's a lot of what I grew up in and the places that I dreamed about, like going to Alaska, like uh, Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, we're all, you know, these high mountain areas or these, you know, Arctic environments where there weren't a lot of people and that's where Martin liked to live. So, so that's kind of like, you know, what the, to me, the, I'm thinking in terms of the whole experience of, of trapping, not just, okay, I'm going to set traps this way and I'm going to learn this and do that, which, which is all fun. But, uh, when I'm, when I spend a day on the trap line where it takes me and I, you know, I had, I had fun out in Utah in a city of 60,000 people running out in the ditches outside of town, trapping muskrats and raccoons. But I had way more fun trapping Martin up in the mountains. Um, and uh, it's a totally different experience running ditches with cars driving by or being off the side of the highway compared to uh, being in a place where you're, you're 20 miles from the nearest human being or more. Right. It gives you that, that wild feeling that like a lot of people that trap or even people that hunt uh, get to experience. Yeah, some guys like us are kind of, like, I think you mentioned recently a text to me that we we probably should have been born 100 years ago, right? And right. That, that's the, the whole looking for wild places, I think, is a big part of that for us. Yeah, for sure. I think that's probably one of the reasons I really enjoy trying to trap Wolverine is that they're kind of same thing. You know, you see those in wild places and very seldom do they come near civilizations and um, Martin trapping, even here around Fairbanks, you can catch them within, I'll say maybe 10 miles of Fairbanks, which is a city of 30,000 people. But that's just because everything outside of Fairbanks, Fairbanks is wild. So you're just like on the fringes of it, just right in town, but you don't really see that with Wolverine. I mean, you'll hear guys catching them five or, 10 miles out of town every once in a while, but it just doesn't happen. Yeah. I remember oh, yeah, Pete, I pulled... Pete Buse was talking about catching him in town like 30 years ago when Fairbanks was, was not the way it is today. Right. One of the biologists that I first started working for when you and I met, uh, he was telling me he used to trap right behind the university here in Fairbanks. He would ride a snow machine to class and then he would, he had a Martin line that he ran back beyond the university and did pretty well but that doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> no, the university that when that began, that was quite an interesting time in Fairbanks history. I think, it, you know, not, not just from an outsider's perspective. I don't know if you've ever read the book. Uh, it's called North country challenge written by Ernest Patty. And I haven't. he was the guy that he ended up actually, he ended up running the dredge that was up on the uh, like Coal Creek and Woodchopper Creek up on the Yukon, like uh, downstream uh, between Eagle and uh, Circle, I believe. And but the guy, the guy went to Fairbanks from the Northwest on a ship back in. God, it must have been. I I, I won't say the date because I I really uh, I'll probably be incorrect, but he went to be the first mining professor when they were establishing the University of Alaska Fairbanks. Oh, wow. And it so was, this is early 1900s then? Yeah, and it was like a, it was like a log cabin. They had like one log cabin. They had a, one big building for the university to hold all the classrooms and everything, and then the students lived in little cabins and the on-campus housing. <laughs> and it, it was just, just fascinating to hear the stories about how they – how they got around in the cold temperatures and what the living conditions were like. And, and, uh, these students that were like just building their own cabins to stay in. And, and you could, at the time it sounded like it was pretty easy to get like a vacant lot and just put a cabin on it. Oh, I imagine. Yeah. That early times. Yeah. So I don't know where that went, but the, the, uh, the early on it was, it was definitely pretty wild area. Sounds like. Yeah, for sure. Well, I guess we should get back to Martin here, but um, oh, Fisher! Let me tell you a quick about Fisher, though, because you asked about second favorite. Um, 
Okay. It's a it's a love hate relationship because Fisher are another Mustelid and they're really cool and they're much bigger than Martin. They're the closest thing that that we can get to Wolverine here in Maine, in northern Maine. But there, there's kind of a hate aspect to that because Fisher kill Martin and Fisher do much better in areas that have more human impact. So Fisher around the farm country, they're in areas where there's really heavy logging up here and there there's a lot of the overstory timber has all been cleared and there's young growth coming up and there's lots of rabbits and Fisher don't need the cover as much as Martin do, at least at least not here. And so they're kind of they're kind of the nemesis where it's really awesome to to trap for them, but they kind of detract from the whole Martin experience, I guess. I see. Do you think that the fisher don't need the cover because they're not as susceptible to avian predators? Yeah, I do. Yep, hundred percent. Yeah. So they do a lot better in uh, into like the clear cuts and stuff, even the areas that you get out to and trap there. Yeah, I even see them in open country, like in my farm fields here behind the house, where we've got we've got the cows out, uh, and you know I got like twenty acre field that I just yesterday saw a fisher track went right across the middle of it. They don't it doesn't seem to bother them as uh, like like it would a martin. You don't you you'll see martin in the open spaces once in a while, but it's not that common. It's kind of interesting because up here. Um you'll get into the alpine areas and some of the, the subalpine areas right on the fringes of the alpine and the martin cross those back and forth and, and it doesn't seem to bother them at all. Yeah. Do you think the the populations of birds uh, of of avian predators is different there than it is here? I would say in the winter time it probably is. You don't see um, the you know the number of hawks and eagles we definitely still have owls that stay here in the winter, but that's not suitable habitat really for them up there unless you talk snowy owls, which don't really come this far south. They're, they're more of a north slope predator. Yeah. Yeah, because we have an ungodly number of hawks here, and I, I think I attribute that to the large population of rough grouse. That we have just tons and tons of grouse, and so hawks are, are constantly feeding on grouse. And uh, I, I would suspect that that puts more pressure on Martin. Sure. I would imagine. more eyes in the sky that are looking down for something out in the open. Yeah. And also... Do you... Uh, oh, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Josh. Go, go, go ahead. Uh, another aspect of things is the whole interaction between Martin and Fisher. And I've talked about this, I believe, in a previous episode, but... The, you look up I, I was for a long time banging my head against the wall trying to figure out why Martin seemed to do well in the Arctic in areas where you have like stunted spruce and you don't really have much overhead cover and you don't really have much on the ground just like you know moss and uh, you know bushes woody stems and stuff that there isn't really a lot of complexity whereas here if you have an area that was clear cut and basically what they what they used to do is they would they would clear cut this block of timber and then they'd go in with these big stump crushers and these big machines and they just obliterate all the down woody material and clear it so that the people that went to plant trees they would replant with spruce well they still do this but uh, they 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 go back and they don't have to you know crawl over all these blowdowns and old rotting logs and stuff and so they they'd tear all that up and everything would be kind of clean and they'd plant spruce. And then going back to those areas 20 years later, we see these monocultures, spruce plantations with nothing on the forest floor except for, you know, spruce needles. And so you look at that in those areas, we never have very many Martin in those places, even though there's overhead cover. So, you know, you I've hypothesized a little bit on what the heck is going on because in Alaska, you have a lot of places where the habitat is pretty simple and the martin seem to do really well despite that. I've even read a lot of places where they'll they'll make dens out of squirrel middens. So just those like all those um, chips off of uh, spruce cones and stuff and, and those piles that squirrels make, martin will den in those. And I'm thinking why the heck doesn't that happen here in northern Maine? 
and the big factor that I'm kind of thinking is going on is Martin must need that complexity, not just for food, like for mice and stuff, but I think they need a lot of that complexity to get away from fishers, uh, to, you know, small denning trees and areas that they can dive into, uh, to avoid predation from fisher. Pretty good hypothesis. What about, um, something like even a, like a free thaw cycle, because you guys will get that and we don't really see that up here. And I wonder if that kind of prevents them from like up here, they, they tend to be, I think it's called sub subdivian. Is that when they, yeah, the the snow for like a month at a time or more. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we'll get that up here. You know, when it starts getting 30 and 40 below, you don't see any Martin tracks, but they're still around. And when you start catching them again, their, uh, their scat will be like full of blueberries yeah. and stuff because they've been living underneath the snow because they can still chase the voles and stuff underneath the snow, yeah. but they also are, are omnivorous and they eat blueberries and stuff while they're under there. Yeah, for sure. And I think that in soft, deep snow, Martin have the advantage and when, when there's a crust on top of the snow, fisher have the advantage for sure. And then if there's a thick crust, which some years we get really thick crust, uh, Martin are, are really in trouble because they, can't as they can't access that subnivian area as easily so i think that's that that's a probably a factor and i also wonder how the the forest type influences that so if you have a lot of overhead cover in the forest the the warm weather and the the uh the sun may not have as much of an impact during those thaw cycles and those freeze thaws but i i don't know i think maybe it's possible that like those two are different factors that are playing at the same time but aren't directly related could be but it's kind of cool do it's you think things that, like you you know you start you start thinking more deeply in this stuff and you there's all kinds of things that you never would have considered before you can learn a lot more and kind of get deep down that rabbit hole right it's fun to go down those rabbit holes though <laughs> it's amazing the things that you can learn or hypothesize or that it's not, it's never just one factor that's limiting any species, not even Martin or Fisher, you know, you even say wolves and Wolverine. And I mean, yeah. food drives a lot of that, obviously, but yeah, we, we always want to say it's one factor cause it's easy, easier that way, but <laughs> usually isn't never, yeah, never is. You know, I think we learned that in school. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, what do you think the, the most challenging thing about Martin trapping is at least in, well, I mean, I guess you've trapped in Maine and, and Montana and Utah and, and a little bit here in Alaska, but and it's I would imagine it's different between all the, the different locations you've done it. But, uh, what is the most challenging thing about it? At least in Maine. The, the most challenging thing that I've found, I've, I've gone, I've had a lot of ups and downs in Martin trapping. I started out in Maine when I was first trapping and it was probably about, I was 30 miles north of where I am now. And it was different country that that time it, it was different. And that area is different as well. Believe it or not, you know, just, just a little change in elevation here and latitude can really make a difference in the type, you know, this, like we talked about the snow conditions, you know, we've got, we've got one big hill here that's off of uh, our major, one of our major roads where you climb you climb a couple hundred feet in elevation and it's kind of the breaking point where above on top of that hill, you, you'll have snow and at the bottom you'll have rain. And, uh, and that's in a lot of cases on the shoulder seasons, like we're right on the edge. And so the snow depth can really vary just in that couple hundred feet of elevation. And that seemed, I was, I started trapping North of that kind of dividing line and now I'm, I'm South of it. And I, and I've done most of my recent trapping South of it, but, uh, that was a little bit of a tangent to say that I started off and I did really well with Martin trapping. Uh, when you, when you're trapping, when you're just getting started, you're really ambitious and excited and you try all kinds of different things cause you don't have any preconceived notions on what's the best way to do it. And so a lot of times you're more effective when you get started and then you build these theories and ideas and you get kind of set in your ways on, this is how I make a set for Martin and this is where I trap for Martin. This is how far I, apart I space my traps and all that. And you 
oftentimes will get become less effective because you're not trying those different things. And so I bounced around to a bunch of different areas and I came back here, uh, 15, uh, no, yeah, 10 plus years later, 12 years later. And I was using all of my preconceived ideas and on a bigger scale, trying to, trying to trap Martin. But all that to say, uh, I was much, much less effective more, more recently. And it took me a few years to kind of work that out of my system and, and try and fail at a bunch of different things to where this year I was the most effective I've ever been. And it's, it's always a learning curve and it's always, you know, there's always something different going on. But the, the hardest part about Martin trapping is not actually trapping Martin. That's the easy part. In my opinion, the hardest part for me is finding Martin. So finding areas that contain uh, high densities of Martin that you can trap in relatively, you know, relatively low amount of trapping pressure. So number of Martin per, you know, your, your, your catch percentages a lot of times are based on how good a Martin area you're in, how many Martin are actually in that particular area. So I've tried a million different things. I've trapped in a bunch of different areas. And the challenge, again, with Martin is we usually don't have snow when our season starts. And it's they don't leave a lot of sign. You're, you're not going to see Martin tracks on bare dirt very often. You're not going to necessarily see a lot of scat. Um, you look for down trees and look on top of logs and stuff and look and try to find sign of them. But we're, we're mainly using our judgment of the habitat to to figure out where to set martin traps and and our understanding of where we've had success in the past and the biggest breakthrough for me this year was actually learning to judge that habitat on the right scale uh, the right scale that seems to be affecting martin populations and i that kind of opened everything up for me this year where I, i i really figured out i really got a better understanding what i think i was doing wrong the past several years but the but yeah the hardest part finding them. For sure, that's you think that uh, is between all of the different areas you found because that that tends to be what I find up here. There's, a, I mean, you saw it when you came to Fort Yukon last year trapping. Is there's just a lot of hungry country. Like, you know, something will come through there one time and that's it. Yeah, is that sure. kind of the? Yeah, uh, even Montana, Utah seemed to be the same thing. Was just cool. finding area yeah it was it's hard because i definitely noticed that the overall population densities in utah and montana were much lower than it than maine so the the country is far less productive it's probably more similar to uh to to alaska in that sense of actually like martin per square mile or whatever uh the, there were different challenges in in Montana and Utah that maybe were within that whole context of there were a lot less Martin there. Uh, Where I trapped in Utah was, was kind of the spot for, for, uh, for Martin, the the one area that you could trap Martin, the only area in the state that actually had a decent pop trappable population, but they were, you know, kind of on the edge, edge of the range there. It's the range is is completely dependent on, uh, elevation not latitude so the martin are in the mountain ranges where i was in in montana the the mountain range that i was in was the beartooth mountains and that country was so steep and they were kind of martin were were again kind of on the edge of the edge of their distribution range because they they were confined to those mountain ranges but also the other factors going on there is there's a uh, high tendency in that area to get these Chinook winds, which are uh, southerly winds. It's very, very windy country. These southerly winds in the middle of the winter that'll blow, and up to certain elevations, they'll just completely eat all the snow, and they they blow warm warm air from the south. Uh, as the air, I don't understand completely how it works, but it's something with the way the air moves over the top over the mountains, the change in elevation. As that air is dropping back down, it picks up heat or something, and, and uh, it bring it brings warm air. So the the um, the blanket of snow that you have in Alaska 
and the blanket of snow that we have in northern Maine that starts, you know, it may start sometime in October, November, depending where you are, and it'll stay until the following spring. It, it wasn't that way over there. It was, you know, nine, 10,000 feet elevation would have that snow that would stay, but there was so much country that was just open and blown bare and bare ground. Uh, it was, it seems like the Martin, the, the, the Martin habitat was a lot patchier and the other challenge was actually just trying to get to the Martin. The, the country was super, super steep and the snow depth was so variable that it, that it was hard to find areas where you could consistently, you know, put in a long line for Martin. That's interesting. I, I never would have thought that about Montana. You know, I'm just assuming that there'd be snow cover, you know, throughout the winter there. Yeah, it was crazy. I couldn't believe it. The funny story, when I first moved there, my first winter, I was renting a house uh, outside of this little town, just basically a ranch ranching community. It was a, the town of Fishtail, Montana. Uh, must have been about uh, the whole entire area was probably like less than 300 people. And we got this massive snowstorm in, oh, I can't even remember. must have been late October, early November, something like that. We got uh, about 40, 42 inches of snow. It was, wow. everybody said, this is record breaking and this and that. And, and so it was over the course of a couple of days. And when it ended, there was not a track on the road. Farmers, ranchers had their tractors out and they're feeding cows and everything, you know, feeding hay bales and stuff. But nobody was plowing the driveways. There was no snow plows that I could tell. The town had maintained the road. And no one's shoveling the roofs. And I'm looking around me, I'm like, what is going on? And I rigged up something on the front of my four-wheeler to push snow and open up the driveway. And I, I got up on the roof, and I started shoveling the roof. And, and my neighbor came by, and he says, what are you doing? <laughs> so I'm trying to get snow off the roof. There's four feet of snow on here. And uh, he says, it's all going to melt. And that was just a – it was so foreign to me that once winter starts, you know, it doesn't – the snow doesn't melt where I'm from. And uh, sure enough, it did. And there was only one winter. I think I was there five, uh, four or five winters. And there was only one winter where the snow stuck around for a couple of months. But you'd always get these south winds that would pick up and they would get to 40 degrees and 40 mile an hour winds and they would just blow all the snow away. Wow. That's pretty funny. I would have done the same thing, honestly. But, you know, because of the mindset, that's just how I grew up. Yeah, and, you know, there becomes a snow load is too much for a roof, and huh. but yeah, it is funny how de- depending on where you're at, the everything is just uh, so locally unique. Yeah, even you know here, if you're trapping around Fairbanks, and you can go 150 miles south and you'll get into an area that's just like that they get a lot of snow but they get a lot of freeze-thaw cycles and then we'll get southerly winds you know should they function hooks up here too and it'll be same thing that snow will melt it maybe not it won't all disappear because those are some of the the best places you know guys go ride their mountain snow machines and stuff sure because those you know 10 or 20 feet of snow at the base of those mountains yeah but we, yeah, we do experience that here to further south than where I'm at. But So in between all the, the areas that you've trapped, I mean, obviously we, you've talked about links exclusion devices uh, that you have to use in Maine. Um, but what sets did you use when you first started trapping Martin in Maine? Um, and, and then was there a difference in the ones you used in Utah? and Maine. Yeah. Uh, the, the very first sets I made were probably the simplest. And one thing I should mention is I started out using one tens for Martin. I would not recommend that. <laughs> it was, it was not the smartest, uh, decision. They're, they're just not one twenties designed f- to kill a Martin. Uh, one ten, if you get really strong springs, if you've got a newer trap, that's, that's okay. You'll get by, but I definitely recommend going with 120s if you can. But basically what what I was starting out doing is just uh, looking for the base of a tree, looking, you know, where the kind of two roots kind of break apart and there's a hollow spot there. And 
you just either dig out a little area within that hollow spot or you already got one there. You toss a little bit of bait behind it and you stick the trap right in front of that opening. Maybe a couple of guide sticks around the trap to make the animal go through that that conibear. So that was the simplest set. I mean, that was a, a real eye-opener for me. It was my mentor that, that taught me how to trap. Uh, we spent some time going to different areas and like making different types of sets in one area and seeing where we caught Martin. And uh, one of the ones that situation that I'll never forget is he had, he had a set uh, up in a tree and he had one on the ground and he had, and he had two on the ground. One was in a, maybe one was in a box and one was, one was just that traditional set that I was using. And we we went back the next day and there was a martin in the ground and nothing had touched anything in the tree and it was the you know when the light bulb comes off go, goes off like oh okay so so what does that mean uh, and and what i gathered from that was if a martin's given the choice it's going to take the path of least resistance it's going to going to go to the easiest source of food so that was that was kind of what i started doing and then of course we had all the issues with the uh, lynx uh, canada lynx being listed as threatened under the endangered species act and the lawsuits that followed that listing which uh, required us to change a lot of the ways that we trapped so we we had to start trapping only up in the trees and there were a bunch of different regulations that that sort of changed uh, over time you know it was kind of a, a progression of different you know first they the set had to be just four feet off the ground and then after that it had to be uh, on a, a pole that was less than four inches diameter, if, if I'm remembering correctly. And then, and then it had to be, the pole had to be greater than 45 degree angle, four feet off the ground, uh, less than four inch diameter pole. And it had to be at least four feet away from any other, uh, piece of vegetation that was greater than four inch diameter, just on and on. So, so it made it increasingly, uh, uh complex to try and, try and figure out you know it was it was no longer what's the best set to catch martin it was more you know got to do this legal and and pick a you're more the challenge was more in in picking your location uh going to utah i we we had to the regulations were kind of similar they had some links uh in that area and they the regulations called for like an elevated covered set and those, those were typically we we're on down logs and setting cages or, or leaning poles with uh, a bracket to hold the the 120, and some, kind of like the leaning pole version of the Mike Lipinski set, and I also tried a okay. bunch of those, um, and I did the, the Lipinski. I was actually pushing to try to get them to make the Lipinski set legal in in Maine after the Lynx thing, and they went, it 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 received no. Uh, it didn't work. It didn't happen. But the, for people that don't know that, uh, Josh and one of Josh and I's favorite trapping videos. And what, one of the first ones that I ever watched was, uh, was, what is it called? Wilderness trapping with Mike Lipinski. Yeah. Wilderness trapping with Mike Lipinski. And he goes through a bunch of different trapping for different species in Northwestern Montana. And his Martin set is just like a, it's a vertical cubby and the cubby is made of like spruce boughs that are are uh, held up by a couple of nails nailed into the tree and the conibear is held with a bracket and basically it's it's hard to picture on a podcast but the martin has to run vertical up the tree through the body grip to get the the bait which is nailed onto the side of the tree um works it it, it can work really good but it's you know you are making that martin um, do a lot and as josh knows as well as i do is is uh also on using that on a leaning pole set can be challenging because sometimes those bows are not enough to discourage a martin from uh from coming around the back side of your set even on a vertical plane you know like straight up and down the tree like i have problems with martin getting on top of her weasels even and and they just come in through the top of the cubby yeah. If you want to call it a cubby, but um, and, and I've seen quite a few cats actually get caught in those links up here. Have you really? So, yeah, yeah. They'll just 
stick their paw right on through the 110 or 120 and yeah. it's it's essentially like almost like catching a martin on a pole set and they just sit there got their one arm up in the air okay huh they're, they're stuck there and and link, i don't know how bobcats are you know for people to trap bobcats but links don't really fight they're pretty timid they'll, they'll get caught and they'll you know develop a catch circle just a small one and everything but they it's not like catching a coyote or another canine or, or wolverine where they tear everything up and they can reach they're pretty pretty timid yeah yeah for sure i've no, I noticed that in the ones i dispatched caught and dispatched there in alaska they were I mean, just yeah there wasn't they didn't put put up too much of a fight um what like i was thinking if you had that like five feet off the ground you'd you'd prevent that but you're thinking they might be able to still reach up through there yeah, probably. I mean, one one cat that that I just uh, took in and and sold two days ago. It uh, is a big tom, and he was probably pushing six feet. Like if he stretched all the way out, he wow. he would probably be able to reach close to six feet. Hmm. So there's a lot of leg there on those. I'm oh, sure. For sure yeah. If you were for that. Well, maybe it's a good thing that didn't happen, uh, that didn't become legal then. <laughs> so, uh, and then go, good, moving good in. Theory, yeah, it, I did. Uh, I did catch a martin in that vertical Lipinski covey in Montana. Uh, I had an area that I, though that I made like thirty sets, and I got one martin in three weeks. So that just gives you an idea of how hard they were to come by, uh, but. One of the things I did more of in Montana was was foothold sets for Martin, kind of like the ones that that you'll make in Alaska a lot of times. Just a foothold and a kind of a, a little ground cubby, and and that worked uh-huh. very well. Uh, the The reason if if somebody wants to run the most efficient uh, trap line for Martin or or even Fisher for that matter, it's most efficient meaning number of animals per trap set. I think you're on the ground with foothold traps is going to be far more efficient than body grip traps. The reason that we're using body grip traps are number one, it's required by state law in a lot of places. Number two, uh, body grip traps often have different check times than, than uh, foothold traps and check times from trapping perspective are just as important as any other. They're probably the most important regulation really because uh, when you're trying to run a trap line with a full-time job, and you know as well as I do that the biggest challenge for everybody that's listening to this podcast is going to be finding time to, to run your traps. And like here, we have to check all foothold traps every 24 hours. Uh, body grip traps that are killer sets in unorganized towns, we only have to check every five days. And there's certain states, I think Wyoming is seven or 10 days on those uh, body grip traps. And so, so there's that, and then there's of course the you know the quick humane kill on on the body grip. Uh, if you can't get there, even if your state doesn't require, maybe you make the choice that you want to use that. Um, and yeah, I think that's that's probably about it for considerations on on uh, why you why you wouldn't trap necessarily the most efficient way. Um, if you have if you can if you can trap with more extended check times you can cover a lot more ground and you can get more sets out and, and uh but if you're if you're retired and you're trapping right close to home or say you're in a camp somewhere and you don't and you're running that area every day anyway uh footholds and in little cubbies on the ground are probably the the best way to set up that's been my experiences up here too that just just a simple cubby on the ground with a foothold. You don't have the refusal stuff that you get with uh, a pole set up here. I, I yeah. actually have quite a few refusals with that. And I don't know if it's young Martin or females. You know, everybody's got their theories. But I, I've had a lot of poles you come up to, and there's Martin tracks right over to it and all around it, but they wouldn't go up it. And and you tend to not see that with a, with a ground set. Yeah. But one of the one of the disadvantages that we see up here with ground sets, and I'm sure you probably see it there too, is once a Martin is dead and laying on the ground, mice, it's yeah. like re- revenge for the mice. Yeah. And, sure. and they'll like swarm on that when they get the chance and start snipping all the guard hairs and everything. 
Yeah, exactly. So, so that's one of the reasons to elevate the set is to keep that fur from being damaged, uh, especially if you're if you're not checking every day, or if the animal's going to be dead. And the other thing to consider for people is if you're in an area where you are managing, quote unquote, managing your populations, males will climb up trees much more readily than females. And I've also noticed, it seems to be with these lynx exclusion devices too, that males are more likely to go in them. But uh, population management wise, if you just don't want to over trap a population, you just want to catch males, then that, that is an avenue to, you know, use those elevated sets. Uh, However, I have probably heard more, in my opinion, again, there's more people who think they manage their populations than actually manage their populations of Martin. Um, we get this question up here all the time about, and, and I, I know guys that trap just next great, you know, not far from me that say, Oh, I'm managing my population and I don't want other people trapping here because I'm managing and you're catching 25 or 50 animals. You got, you know, we got limits here of 25 per trapper and a guy and his wife or, you know, might be catching 50, but, uh, if you actually consider the amount of area you're trapping, the amount of habitat, the number of marten per square mile in that particular habitat, how many you're actually catching, and the surrounding area and how hard the surrounding area is trapped, I think you would you would notice that you're not you're not managing your population <laughs> nearly as much as you think you are, and uh, it takes now marten are not like muskrats where they can be overtrapped. Muskrats, you need to trap like 80 to 90 percent of the population uh, in order to depress their numbers for the following year. Martin can be overtrapped. However, they have some very interesting biological mechanisms that allow them to respond to heavy trapping pressure and have more success, uh, you know, breeding success the following year. So populations are have these built-in um, the biological uh, mechanisms that allow them to to respond to different environmental conditions and mortality and all that. Um, but there are guys, you know, there's guys that are running massive long lines, and especially it seems to be more in, in Canada where they have registered trap lines and some places in Alaska where guys are, are really trapping martens seriously and they have relatively low population densities that they they probably do you know that it seems like that management uh, mentality actually does have some merit, and they can affect their success the following year by only harvesting males or you know minimizing the harvest of females, or or letting it rest. You know, letting they a lot of guys will let the line rest for a year or so. Yep, there's there's actually quite a bit of literature up here that uh, the Alaska Department of Fishing Game has put out as far as like uh, I won't say a protocol to follow, but um, some things to keep in mind, I guess, while you're, if you have like a dedicated line that you trap and it's, it's keeping track of your, your male, female catch ratio and even um, juvenile versus adult uh, take. And there's a, a whole equation that they have that you can put all of your numbers into and they have thresholds for, what they would say you're not going to be affecting your population, like your reproduction and all that. That's pretty, pretty interesting. A lot of guys do take that into consideration up here when they have these two and 300 mile lines that they trap every year. Yeah. That's and when awesome. they hit that, yeah. yeah. When they hit that certain, certain threshold, it's like, okay, now we got to shut down our Martin trapping I'm, because I'm trapping too many females or, or that sort of thing. Right. Huh. It, it used to be, it's kind of evolved here in the last, I'd say like 10 or 15 years. Cause it used to be, you just kept an eye on male, female ratios. And when you started creeping towards like a 50% yeah. uh, female catch, that was when you stopped trapping Martin or you at least like scaled back your efforts. Yeah. And, and that's, I, that's kind of hard for a guy up here because that like Martin is the bread and butter up here. It's what pays your gas and everything. If you're running a snow machine, to you know to run your line yeah and kind of the wolves and wolverine links and those are kind of like the icing on the cake but martin is what pays the bills i'm gonna read those i'm gonna look into that because i remember they, they had a really cool uh, article on how to 
identify juveniles from adults and I've I've kind of used that to try and look at mine and also I've used it for Fisher to to identify juvenile versus adult Fisher as well looking at the skull so mm-hmm. that's pretty interesting and I, I would imagine that the the, the your your plans on whether or not you're going to trap that line the next year or you're going to rest it for a couple of years might also influence whether you're willing to how far you're willing to go as far as your male to female ratio sure that probably neighboring trapping pressure too you know if you know sure, the next yeah. valley over the next drainage over somebody's trapping that you know on both sides of you if you're all surrounded or whatever you would i would imagine the guy'd take that into consideration yeah yeah as well you know having a an inflow or the immigration immigration into your area and then, of course, there's overriding factors, like looking back in history, you know, like Jim Furman talks about up in the Yukon Flats, where back in the 80s, they caught a pile of marten in there. Now, when I went there last year, we saw one marten track in three weeks. But uh, there, there's distinct periods of time, uh, and maybe some of it coincides with lynx population cycles also but there's like waves of martin that'll move into an area and move out of an area and so even where you may be doing everything right to manage your population uh, these mass migrations and these these natural fluctuations might uh, sometimes override that too for sure there's one person i know that he ran a i think it was like an 80 mile line and at the start of the season the martin were down low on his line uh, like the lower half of it i would say 30 miles of it was kind of low country and then the second half of the season those martin moved from the low country up to the high country so if an individual was just trapping that low country it would seem like the martin disappear every year yeah but in reality they're just moving to a higher elevation and a lot of that you know temperature snowfall whatever can probably affect that so do you have much inversion effect where you are where that that cold air sinks down into the valleys and the martin will go up higher to get into the warmer air it's kind of interesting you bring that up because when i first started trapping it i always read like martin like stunted spruce well that's all in the valleys and everything um and on like north facing hills and kind of what i found like throughout my trapping career is the the martin densities are a, a lot higher on the foothills and and I'm not going to say for sure that that's because of the temperature, but it, it's kind of uh, coincidental that the Martin trapping is better in the rolling hills and everything because we do see those temperature inversions. It could be, you know, 40 below down in the valley floor, and then you just come up, say, 600 feet in elevation. It'll only be 20 below. Yeah. And so I, I think there's, you know, that's a big reason where you see the Martin in the foothills and in the rolling hills. And the, I won't call them higher elevation areas, but the, the elevated areas for sure, because it, we do get those inversions where it is warmer. And then do you have that, that pattern that we mentioned earlier with the, you know, Martin will go under the snow for like weeks at a time or, or longer. Do you guys, do you notice that at a particular time? Is there any pattern there? I guess I I can't say that I've paid particular attention to it, Um, but I've never really ran a a very long line consistently, you know, the same line to kind of develop a pattern. I've moved around too much. I've kind of noticed it from afar, like just snowmobiling in the wintertime. We do, both for my job and personally, do a fair little bit of backcountry snowmobiling and so obviously you're looking at tracks a lot you know and it it seems like you know during during november we get a lot of martin activity in december and then it's sometime in depending on how deep the snow is uh, there's sometime january february where there's a long period of time where you just don't see martin tracks and my assumption is that's when you know they're feeding under subnivian and they're going to uh, feeding on voles and maybe they got food stashed. I don't know, but uh, the, and then all of a sudden there's a the period of time when you start seeing tracks again and they're coming back out. I assume they're coming back out. So 
uh, yeah, that's, and it's not a, it's nothing that I can nail down. Like I really have a lot of experience with, but it just an observation. Well, that's going to do it for tonight's episode. Stay tuned for part two of my Martin conversation with Josh. A lot of fun there uh, and uh, get kind of get the juices flowing and get thinking a little more about Martin habitat and populations and how to trap them, different methods and, and things that work and things that don't work. So stay tuned for that. And uh, it is time, guys, for the Cots Brothers message of the week. So Cots Bros wants you to sign up for their email newsletter. By signing up for the newsletter, you get access to new product updates, coupon codes, and more. Go to cotsbros.com, K-A-A-T-Z-B-R-O-S.com, and click newsletter sign up. Just as simple as that. And you will get an email every time that Cots Bros has something to say, something to share with with uh, the crowd. So uh, it, it, it occasionally you can get some really good deals on this. It's Oftentimes they'll have a new product or they'll have something that they put on special for a little while or maybe even a closeout. And the newsletter is a great way to keep up to date with what's going on there. So thanks for supporting Cots Bros. And please sign up for the newsletter to stay in tune. And finally, the Trapping Today store. I just wanted to mention that I have added a couple of tanned fur pelts. They are very limited quantity. I have one coyote and two otter. So if you go to trappingtodaystore.com and click on uh, tanned furs, you will find those there with the prices. And uh, that's all I'm going to have available, as far as I know, uh, for quite a long time until things come back from the tannery. So check those out if you did want an opportunity to pick up a a pelt. uh, Here might be your chance. And lots of new and exciting things coming in the next few months from Trapping Today, so stay tuned for that. And until next time, keep on talking trapping, keep on thinking trapping. We will catch you on the next episode.